listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. study guides. They should be on the back table. You can pick one of those up. There's uh, just a common uh, plain covered one, and then there's a fancy covered one. The contents on the inside is all the same. So uh, if you would, just uh, pick up one of those if you'd like, and you can walk through it with us. What it has is basically the verses on one side, and then you've got a place to write, take notes on the other side as you read through it and as you study it. And this morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 to 7. I thank Chris Brown for being here last week and uh, giving us an introduction and an overview and setting the context for the book of Daniel. I'll remind you this morning uh, just to let you know um, the book of Daniel, while it gives us insights into Daniel and his three friends, the book of Daniel is primarily about God. And it's about the faithfulness of God. And so don't miss that as we go through the study. And while I certainly would not want to miss the opportunity to challenge you to look at the life of Daniel and, and even challenge you to dare uh, to be faithful like Daniel was, I would also say that the purpose of the book of Daniel is not for us to look at it and say, I need to be like Daniel because ultimately we're going to fail, but Jesus is not going to fail. He is faithful. And so we look at the faithfulness of our God, but we also, I think, have the opportunity to look at maybe some similarity of circumstances because we know Daniel was in exile. Daniel and his three friends were in the minority and they were facing persecution, and they were facing opposition, and they were surrounded by a world that was doing everything that it could to undermine what they believed and to overcome how they were trying to live. And so um, I think we live in a similar circumstance, but I also think that our future is rapidly moving toward some type of catastrophic um, event at least nationally, that is going to cause us to see great change. And the question would be, would we even maintain our faith when the Son of Man comes? Will we find faith on earth? It really does seem to be waning, not only culturally, but in the church. But for those of us who do know Christ, are we going to remain faithful and figure out how to live in an exiled world? And so that is sort of the thing that we're approaching this morning. So we're looking at verses 1 to 7. I've got four things that I want to share with you from uh, the text briefly that are simply application statements that I hope you'll be able to um, use in your life today. Let's begin reading Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's, that's Israel, that's the people that are identified as the people of God, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Specific wording there that uh, has a specific implication. Verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and com competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. It really is good to be in Babylon. Life is good in Babylon, right? Life is good in Babylon. You were suffering in Israel, but you're in Babylon now. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king, and life is good here. Let us read on. Verse 6, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, gave them new names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. 
What do we see in the text? Let me just give you four things that um, I think scream from this text this morning. Number one, God always responds to sin. God always responds to sin. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 is a result of the judgment of God. God has told his people, you can go as far back as Leviticus chapter 26, and God says, listen, here is the covenant that we are establishing with each other. And if you fail to keep my covenant, these are the things that are going to happen to you. And he closes all of these results of their failure to keep the covenant that God has established among them, their sin that they continue to live in. And he says, one of the things going to happen is you're going to be scattered. You're going to be scattered. This is exactly what is happening. This is the judgment of God. God always responds to sin. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God told Cain, he said, listen, if you don't listen and if you don't respond, sin is crouching at the door. But then Cain said in Genesis 4.13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that the world is in such a mess. It has progressively gotten worse and worse and worse that God all of a sudden now brings a worldwide flood. We see in Genesis 11, after the flood and after the population begins to grow, you can see a group of people that are beginning to build a tower up to heaven. And they basically are saying, let us, let us, let us, let us, let us. It's interesting, just a parenthetical thought as we talk this morning, it's interesting that in, in response to their let us, we see in Genesis 12, God said, I will, I will, I will. I will. In fact, if you've got them on the same page in your Bible, you can almost draw a line. Here are people that are in sin and self-sufficient, reminiscent of Genesis 3, where they're going to be independent of God. And now in Genesis 11, even after the flood and after the judgment of sin, these people are disobeying God and they're not filling the earth with glory bearers, but they're staying in one place, building a tower into heaven. And God says, okay, this is a problem. And he confounds their languages and this place is called Babel or Babylon. God always responds to sin. Genesis 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Ezekiel 18, 4. The soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 3, 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And verse 23 says, for all have sinned. We are all sinners. It is our nature. We cannot help it or moralize it or perform our way out of it. And we cannot save ourselves from sin. And God always responds to sin, even when we think we've gotten away with it. So, so don't miss this. This is about God. God always responds to sin. But let me tell you what this leads us to and what this ultimately points to. God's ultimate response to sin was sending his son. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that he bore our sins in his body that he might redeem us. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that, that, that he gave his only begotten son. Why did he give his only begotten son? Because of sin. Because God is responding to sin. God always responds to sin. You can repent today and be flooded with grace and mercy. You can turn from your sin today and be free. The appeal and longing of the Father, please hear me, is not to crush you in your sin because he has already crushed his son for your sin and made you whole. The Father killed his son so that we might have life. He exiled his son so that we could stay in the family. 
Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that his son was outside of the camp, outside of the family, so that we could be in the family. And I would beg you this morning to repent and turn to the one who planned from the foundation of the world to slay his own son for our sin that we might be set free. God always responds to sin. Don't miss that. If you're in sin today and you're like, aha, I got away with that. I remember growing up and people would warn you about all kinds of stuff. They'd warn you about smoking and drinking and cussing and fornicating. You know, you get all those warnings. And then we'd see the signs that say don't do it. And we'd walk right through the signs and nothing happened. You thought as soon as you took a draw off of that cigarette or whatever else may be in vogue today and obviously a lot of things are in vogue today even in the church you think oh i didn't drop dead in fact it felt good you know when i when i drank i didn't i didn't drop dead you know when when we crossed the barriers and the line we didn't drop dead god first of all my parents must be lying and secondly god must not care but if you're in Christ when we sin and God doesn't respond to sin it does kind of make us wonder Am I in Christ? Right? Does God really care about me? Is it a caring parent who watches their kid live in disobedience and does nothing about it but gets red-faced and raises their voice? Right? So here is God always responding to sin. And maybe you're in sin and maybe he hasn't responded yet, but he will. But I would plead with you today come to Christ. There you will find love. There you will find relationship. There you will find life. Can I, just, can I just be honest with you today? You were not created for sin. You were not created for sin. Sin is going to ruin you and me in every way possible. It's going to ruin us in our brain. It's going to ruin us in our thinking. It's going to ruin us in our emotions. It's going to ruin us in our heart. It's going to ruin us psychologically. It's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to ruin us in every way. It's going to ruin us physically. You and I were not created for sin. We were created to be in a relationship with God, and sin destroyed the opportunity for that. But Christ has come that we can be reunited to our Creator. That is what I was made for. That is what you were made for. And I would beg you to come to Christ today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the only hope for you and for me in this world and in light of our sin. Secondly, not only does God always respond to sin, but God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like he is. God is always in control. Look at verse 2. And verse 1 is this judgment right? This, this egg, judgment of exile for a people who are in sin and disobedience. And by the way, let me say this. Judgment for sin is always an act of grace on the part of God. It is, it is unkind and ungracious for God to, to let those that he cares about continue in their sin without bringing judgment to stop it, right? God always responds to sin. So don't don't look at God and say, oh, God's a meanie. God's bad. I don't want to know God. God's uncaring because he judges sin. It is very caring. It is very loving. It is very gracious for sin to be judged because the objective of the Father in judging the sin of Israel, we will see, is that they would be restored, that they would come back to fellowship. And that is the cycle that they continuously go through throughout their history. But secondly, God is always in control. Look at verse 2. I'll read it again. And the Lord gave, right? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And Nebuchadnezzar goes in and takes some of the vessels of the house of God, of the God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels of his treasury. He, he, took, he took the vessels, the symbols that represented God's kingdom, God's power, God's presence, God's people. And he walks right out of their dwelling place, their temple. And he walks in and he takes them into his temple and he stores them there with the symbols of his God, which is actually a show of the superiority of Nebuchadnezzar's God over the God of Israel. God let all of that happen 
God let all of that happen. God let bad things happen. God let things happen in such a way where it looked like the God of Nebuchadnezzar was the winner and the God of Israel was the loser. God was in control of every bit of that. God is the author of every sordid, painful detail of this gut-wrenching scenario, whether it's through abandonment or design. There are times that God steps back and says, look, you want to sin, I'm going to let you sin. But you don't know where that sin's going to take you, and I'm going to let you find out. And you're going, to, you're going to repent, and you're going to turn back to me when you see the horrors of that sin. Whether it is by abandonment or by design, God, God is, the, is in control of every detail. Nothing escapes or happens outside of the strength of his mighty hand or the scope of his sovereign purpose. In 605 B.C. or 2022 A.D., God is in control even when it doesn't seem like it. God's purposes, God purposes that they leave the land. He uprooted them from all that was comfortable and familiar. Listen to me. God purposed that they leave the land. He uprooted them from all that was comfortable and familiar from their family, from their future, from their inheritance, from their identity, from their possessions, from their collections, from their libraries, from their photo albums, from their plans, from their dreams, from their hopes, from everyone that they knew, the wicked people, the good people, every one of them were off to Shinar because of the judgment of God, because of the control of God. No one escapes the horror and the pain. God allows it to seem like the God of Babylon was victorious. God allows it to seem like the God of Babylon is superior. That the God of Israel was inferior. And this made Nebuchadnezzar all that much more confident. All that much more arrogant. All that much more aggressive and bombastic. God allowed some of his choice people, his best people, his most faithful people to come under the complete control and domination of the enemy, of the godless, of the pagan. And some serious and grievous and even physical things happened to them when God allowed that. Yet there was not a single second in this scenario that God was not in complete control. Not a single second. Not a single ounce of suffering. Not a single ounce of disappointment or pain. None of it was wasted. God in all of it, listen to me, we need to hear this. God in all of it was lurking and working in the shadows, unthreatened and unthwarted and guaranteed to be victorious. God is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. I don't know who's going to win the elections in November. I don't know if it's going to be the Republicans or the Democrats. I don't know if when they win, if the stock market's going to go up or down. I remember in 1986, when uh, George Bush, the first one, was elected president, I was in Richmond, Virginia, and we passed by a bank, and everybody looked upon the sign at what the stock market was doing. Because all of these things impact all of these things that really are more important to us than actually what happens in the kingdom of God. Right? We want a better life now. We want financial security now. We want freedom now. We want our retirement accounts to grow now. We want to live lives of luxury, don't we? We want to be comfortable. We want to have control. That's where we live. And there are things that happen that take all of that away, and it is the design and plan of God. And let us not miss that. God always responds to sin even when it seems like we get away with it, but God is always in control, even when it seems like he isn't. And I'll tell you, uh, there are times that things happen, and if I were God, I would do things differently. But you better thank God I'm not God, right? And you better thank God you're not God. And at the end of it all, we're all going to thank God that he's God and that his plan was perfect. The third thing we see in the text of Scripture is this, is that the spirit of Babylon is always 
present. We see it in, in verses 3 to 5. And look at what they're doing. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, the, the, the chief eunuch. Um, and and by, by the way, um, a, a eunuch is someone who has been altered physically. Right? And this was a cultural phenomenon that was happening in their day. There was physical alteration. And they had their purposes behind it um, that I think are different than the purposes in our day where people are altered physically because they think that they are something different than what God created them to be. And that, that, is, that is a whole phenomenon in and of itself that's worthy of conversation this morning. But they, they bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish. So they're looking for the best of the best. They're looking to, to create some form of brain drain, right? They want to take the, the, the brightest, the handsomest, the most creative of any nation, and this happens all the time, and bring them, he wants to bring them into um, um, Babylon so that they can then influence them into the ways of Babylon, into the philosophy of Babylon, into the theology of Babylon, and use them for the advantage of their purposes. And so the spirit of Babylon is always present. The origin of the spirit of Babylon is found in Genesis chapter 3. We see that Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he says, God's care is not the best care, right? God really doesn't care about you. God's plan is really not the best plan in Genesis 3. God is really not the best God. And in fact, God really doesn't care as much about you as I do. And Satan says, there is a better way. But the origin of Babylon is away from a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and it's a relationship with lying systems and philosophies and deceptions and trinkets. Babylon always has a better ad campaign. Babylon always has better commercials. Babylon always makes better offers and better promises and has better optics and better options. That's Babylon. It was quite attractive. It was quite alluring. It was quite powerful. What is the operation of the spirit of Babylon. We see the, the origin of the spirit of Babylon that they're in right here. What's happening there is happening here in 2022. The spirit of Babylon dominates the age that we live in. The spirit of Babylon originated in the garden of Eden with the fall of man into sin. The, 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 the spirit of Babylon is, is operative when we come to Genesis 11, they're saying, let us, it's a man-centered operation, it's self-glorifying. We will defy God and build our own kingdom. That is what's happening in Babylon. In Babylon, we want to defy God and build our own kingdom. Let us, let us, let us. But God says, no, 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 no. I've got a kingdom. I am in control. Our let us will never defeat God's I will. The outcome of the Spirit of Babylon is seen in Revelation chapter 14 and verse number 8 when essentially at the end of time the spirit of Babylon is going to meet its fate, is going to meet its doom and it is going to be destroyed. But let us understand until then the, 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 demonic, spirit, the, the demonic spirit that permeates all that we live in right now is the spirit of Babylon and it is operative in our midst. It is operative in our midst. I've opened the scriptures this morning and I have proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is a fist in our chest. There is a fist in our chest that says, why don't you mind your own business? Why don't you leave me alone? Why don't you hurry up and get finished? I wish you would shut up. You just said something that offended me. You just said something that is against what I've been told at school or by somebody on TikTok or somebody on Facebook or something that I read. There is a fist in our chest. What is this fist in our chest that says, leave me alone? What is this thing that causes us to be angry when someone comes at us and says, no, you, you can't be good enough to be saved. And the fist says, I can be good enough to be saved. When I say Christ is the only way to be saved, and you say, no, there are many ways to be saved. 
No one goes to heaven apart from believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't tell me that. All roads lead to heaven. And I'm going to make it there. What is that fist in our chest? It is the spirit of Babylon that desires to take away the hope that is ours. And it is always operative. I love the book of Job and Job, uh, Satan shows up and God and Satan are having a conversation and, and, um, and, and by the way, you say, man, I don't believe in Satan. I don't believe he's real. I'll tell you, I was thinking yesterday, I was walking around the church building here and somebody just in the back parking lot out here, it's not our parking lot, it's the city's parking lot. It looked like somebody pulled up there, took their trash can and dumped it out on the parking lot. Now, really what they did is they just cleaned out their car. Okay. Um, they just cleaned out their car. And I thought, this is absolute proof of the depravity of humanity, right? Um, just, just the fact that who cares? I'm going to dump my trash. But let me tell you something. With all that we see going on in the world today, what in the world did you attribute it to? Depending on what news channel. And if you're, if you're watching CNN, it's the Republicans' fault. And if you're watching Fox News, it's the Democrats' fault, Right? But, but we're all sinners, and there is a force behind it. There's a person behind it. His name is Satan, and he's real. And so God's having this conversation with Satan. He's like, hey, what you been up to? And he's like, man, I've been going to and fro and back and forth in the earth. And he is. He is. Jesus told Peter, he said, the devil desires you that he may sift you as sweet. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, there is the prince of the power of the air that is always operative. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul tells us that there are these forces that we are fighting against. And he says, he says, you stand. And he says, when you feel like your legs and your ankles are getting weak and you feel like you've got to fall and you want to turn and you run, there is nothing to protect your back with the enemy. You've got to stand. And he said, having done all, doing everything that you can, you make sure you stand because there are forces of evil that are coming after you and after me and he's described as a lion going about seeking whom he may devour and he appeals to our eyes and he appeals to our flesh and he appeals to our heart and this is the spirit of Babylon and what we see happening here in the text is in this spirit of Babylon the spirit of Babylon seeks to redefine us it seeks to redefine us. It's a scientific process that we see right here in the text of Scripture, by the way. It's called the process of am amalgamation. It's uniting. It's taking one nationality in this context, trying to unite it with another nationality with the objective of obliterating the imprisoned nationality. In other words, there is this desire, and always has been on the part of Satan, to obliterate the people of God is a unique people to obliterate Israel as a unique people to obliterate this, this uh, monotheistic God, this one God. And if I can obliterate him, I, if I can obliterate his people, if I can obliterate his plan, then I can obliterate this whole concept of this one God. And that's what Satan has been doing since the foundation of the world. And that is the spirit of Babylon. Let us re define you and that's what's happening in the culture that we live in right now it's a social re-engineering it's amalgamation it is a satanic plan from the beginning to obliterate any trace of god and the the easy access to all of us is a sensual access a sensual access so it is scientific it is scientific. It's, it's what, what they are exposing here in the text happens all the time. Whenever you find a people that are taken over, they are then immersed in the culture that has overtaken them with the goal of them forgetting the culture that they came from so that they can be, they can, they can, um, be redefined as somebody other than what they used to be. But the access is through the sensual. Look at, look at all the benefits. They probably had premium five-star housing for them. They brought, in, they brought in the best food. It's all sensual. They put them in with a bunch of people that are smart like they are. It's all sensual. It's all alluring. It's all attractive. All we have is Jesus here. All we have is Jesus. 
And even when you come to Revelation 5, and they're trying to figure out who's going to open the scroll, the one that opens the scroll as they look is one standing, a lamb, as though it had been slain, all beaten up. All I can offer to you today is a man who was hung on a cross. That's all I can offer to you today. And while he may not appeal to your senses, and he may not appeal to your instincts, he does appeal to your heart. And your problem and my problem is not that my food doesn't taste good enough and not that my lodging isn't good enough and not that I, I, I don't, I'm not in the upper echelon of the culture or that I'm not intelligent enough or that I'm not important enough. You know what my problem is and you know what your problem is today? Our problem is our heart. And Jesus comes and changes our heart and gives us a new identity. But Babylon is coming after you and me, and there's sensuality, and there's luxury, and there's, there's, there's ease. And the objective is to redefine, to intoxicate, to numb us spiritually, to affirm us psychologically, and to literally redefine who we are. And, and without me going into details... You can go to Genesis 1 and you can see how he created us. How did he create us? In his image. How did he create us? He created us male and female. How is Babylon appealing to us? Babylon is trying to obliterate the image of God. Babylon is trying to obliterate how God has created us. And you say, I, 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 don't, I don't believe you. You, you can't, you cannot... You, you, you do not have anything rational. You have no facts to counteract this morning that the very attack of Satan coming out of Babylon right now in 2022 in the United States of America, in Locust Grove, Georgia, to the hearts of the people that are sitting at South Point Fellowship Church in Locust Grove, these are the very things that are appealing to us and our families. Satan is at work to redefine us. Secondly, he wants to recreate. He wants to re-identify us. He wants to give us a new name. He wants to give us a new identity. And this, quite frankly, is the predominant purpose and activity of the structures of our society. We're like, what in the world happened to our society? Why doesn't, why doesn't anybody want to work? And, and by the way, one of the, one of the problems that, and, and just, all you got to do is do the math. Um, money's running out. <laughs> money's running out. It's going to run out. You, you can't have a, a massive population that's, that's, that's getting the benefits of taxation, right? And fewer and fewer people are paying taxes, right? Just, just, just do, forget, forget God for a minute. I know you're at church. That's terrible. I don't really mean that. Okay? But, but just, just, just forget all of that for a second. And, and by the way, you say, why, why does everybody have a... a, a Need help sign in the window. I'll tell you why. We, we, we aborted 60 million people. We aborted 60 million people. Th those are human beings that would be walking the face of the planet, earning money, paying taxes, right? But, but no, we're, I mean, folks, we, we are headed, uh, we are, we are, how in the world is, is, is the president going to pay for paying off our student loans, I don't have any student loans. Thank God I never did. But how's, how's he going to pay for it? Um, how about checking your bank account? In fact, how about checking your retirement account? Because he can, he can take that too. He can confiscate every bit of it. You say, I'm okay, man. I got money in the bank. Well, may not may not be any help to you at all. In other words, all, all of this all of this thing, this system that we are a, a part of is a society that is lending itself to the ideology of, of the spirit of Babylon. Some of you send your kids off to college and they come back and you're like, who is that? I don't know them. I raised them this way, but they went and they sat in the classroom of, of some atheistic demagogue who had as his clearly stated objective to detach your children 
from, from their connection to their parents' value system. I'm getting in trouble now. Y'all not coming back next week. This is the spirit. You say, why are you talking about us? This is the spirit of Babylon. This is what happened right here. The systems of our culture are designed to try to overthrow any thoughts or ideas or beliefs that are consistent with Scripture, that are consistent with a creator who loves and who cares and who created us to be in a relationship with him. And it's going to leave us in this huge mess. In fact, come on, folks, do the math. We're already in a huge mess. And it is the spirit of Babylon. And he wants to recreate and re-identify and give us a new name and give us a new identity. In fact, these four guys, we see them right here. Think, think about what happened to their names. Daniel's name was God is my judge. His name was changed to Belshazzar, which is Baal will protect. Come on. Come on. Hananiah's name meant Yahweh is gracious, but they changed it to Shadrach, which means under the command of a coup, which is the moon God. Mishael's name means who is like God, but they changed it to Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the moon god. Again, Azariah, his name meant Yahweh is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, which was a local god. You change your name, you change your allegiance, you change your nature. I would offer you this hope this morning, though. The world can change your name, but only God can change your nature. And that's why he sent his son. I offer you the hope of the gospel. I offer you Jesus Christ on the cross. I offer you Jesus Christ dead. I offer you Jesus Christ who paid for your sin and my sin. I offer you Jesus Christ who spent three days in the tomb and is resurrected from the grave. And he is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. I offer you Jesus Christ who's coming back. Ultimately, the spirit of Babylon's desires to ruin us and destroy us. John 10.10 could not make it any clearer. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Everything that is happening in this world that is controlled and dominated by the spirit of Babylon is designed to steal and to kill and to destroy. The spirit of Babylon is designed to destroy us and we are no match for the spirit of Babylon. This is, this is an insurmountable foe. The fourth thing this morning I want you to see. And, and again, let me just recap. God, is, God always responds to sin, even when it seems like we get away with it. God is always in control, even when it seems like he isn't. The spirit of Babylon is always present. That, that is absolutely undeniable. And then fourthly, God is always faithful, even when we are not. That's why we're given these names here in verses 6 and 7. This, this is the precursor to the faithfulness of God. God's got a plan, and God's got a plant, and God's got some spies that he put right there that were taken under the complete control of everything in Babylon, probably to the point of these guys literally becoming eunuchs. That's some serious stuff right there, especially for us guys, Okay. I mean, kill me, right? But here, here, here they are going into this place and having to be immersed in the culture, but God is protecting their heart. God is faithful. God is faithful. Can, can, can we just say, can, can we just say, can somebody say that this morning? God is faithful. Can you say that with me? God is faithful. He's faithful. And that's what we see here in the text. Let me... Let me cover this section of God's faithfulness here in verses 6 and 7. God keeps his word, always keeps his word. God judges sin. He always judges sin. God suffered faithfully for sin. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, and he said, it is finished. He is faithful. 
You can come to this table this morning. You can take that bread. You can dip it in that juice as a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can put it in your mouth and you can ingest it and you can remember the faithfulness of God. He is faithful. His work is finished. He is, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing left for him to do. And this is good news. The faithfulness of God is good news. Can I tell you this? There is no good news to be found anywhere. There is no good news to be found anywhere except in Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ is the only hope that any of us has. This is good news Someone has written that the objective of the book of Daniel is to establish hope in future restoration based on the sanctifying love of God. And that is the thing that draws his people to repentance. That is good news. How does he do that? He has a remnant. If you remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is having a pity party. And Elijah complains to God, and he's complaining about everything, and the world's falling apart, and he's the last guy on the face of the planet that cares anything about the purposes of God. And God says, hold on a minute, I've got 7,000. And if you go over to Romans chapter 11 and verse number 5, that's where we get the concept of there being a remnant. And if you uh, look up a remnant, a remnant is basically the, the faithful people that are left after a catastrophe. The faithful people that are left after a catastrophe. God has left these men to be his ambassadors. He's left these men to be his representative. He's left these men in this small community, this band of brothers, to be the guys that he has determined he would use strategically to accomplish his purposes during this dark season. God is always faithful this is the strategy of god these four young men this is the plan of god this is the will of god and it will not be stopped in fact let me remind you jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it let me remind you that paul said in philippians 1 6 he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of christ and i don't know how the apostle paul kept going and going and going from philippi where he was beaten and put in solitary confinement to thessalonica where he was run out of town to berea where he was run out of town and he was constantly imprisoned and chained but there was this resonating in the mind of the apostle paul God has begun a good work in me, and God's going to complete his good work in me. And, and that's, that's what's going on here. You're not going to stop the work of God. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians chapter 2. God is faithful. And while we can look at the first half of John 10, 10 and say, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus said, but I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That is good news. God is faithful so even in the midst of catastrophe god has a community and it is through that community that he will without fail accomplish his purposes he's faithful it is of strategic composition he's taken these four men in community and by the way Whenever you find yourself withdrawing from community, recognize that you are in isolation and you are open for the thief to come, steal, kill, and destroy, and you are abandoning the purposes of God. Run to community. Don't run from community. Run to the body of Christ. Don't run from the body of Christ. But even in the midst of a cat catastrophe, God has a community, and it is through that community that he will, without fail, accomplish his purpose. It is of strategic composition. It is simple and usually weak so that, it's, so that his power can be put on display. You're like, what is God going to do through four teenagers? Just wait. He's going to shock the world. Because he is a faithful God and he cannot be stopped no matter what the odds. Nebuchadnezzar was, was insurmountable. There was no way. Why? Because he is always faithful. He is always redeeming. He is always renewing. He is always saving. And he will save you today if you put your faith in him.
I was driving to North Carolina last week when I got word that uh, Georgette passed away. And um, I would say Georgette loved this church, right? We'll go ahead and preach your funeral sermon for you here in the next couple of minutes. I believe she loved the Lord. She loved community. She, she was in life group, um, even when I don't think she probably physically was capable of being there. She couldn't breathe. She was on oxygen. COVID knocked her down. Probably should have got her while she was out in California. She made it back. We'd have prayer meeting up here at 630 in the morning. Georgette, she'd park her car across the street. She'd grab her cane. She'd get out and, and walk in and a step at a time, coming up the steps. She wanted to come in here and pray with those ladies that were coming to pray. She was just faithful. Now, what I, what I don't want you to do is say, man, I need to be faithful like Georgette was faithful. Can I tell you something? Georgette's faithfulness to this church will not save her. If all I'm doing today is telling you, man, if you be faithful, you'll be saved. No, I'm not telling you that. Now, do I need you to be faithful? <laughs> sure I do. I hope you will be. We, we've got Chris Brown's going to be here for the next four or five weeks. Why? Because we've just, we're just overwhelmed up in the kids' areas. We just over, we're overwhelmed. We need help. Um, this is an advertisement. We just need help. We, we, have, we have 53 or 54 people signed up on serve teams in our church, and we just I, I need more of you if, by the grace of God, if you will. If, if you just sign up and help us, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Um, this morning, we need help. We need you to be faithful, but doing all that won't save you. And you're like, well, why should I do it if it ain't going to save me? Maybe you should do it because you are saved, right? We should be servants. Wouldn't it be great if we just had this culture of service? Can, can I just cast a vision for that, man, where everybody just wants to serve, where there is this joy in serving? My point, though, is this. It's not your faithfulness that saves you. Don't think, man, if I can be faithful like Georgette, I can be saved. No. It's your faith in a faithful God. It's your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's why Georgette, I believe, is in heaven right now. Not because she was faithful but because of her faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that is what saves us today. Let me offer you four words of challenge. Number one, repent of your sin. That's the first thing Jesus said when he came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you are in sin, God always judges sin. Repent of your sin. If there is sin in your life, repent. But rest assured, you say, oh, man, I don't know if I want to repent or not. What is it going to mean? Whenever we repent, God always throws a party. That's what we learned from the prodigal son. The prodigal son had his speech ready. He was going to be self-deprecating. He was going to say, Father, let me, go, let me go work with the animals. Let me go dig and put fence posts up. Let me work on a farm. You know, let me crop tobacco. Some of you don't know what that means. Father says, my son who was lost is now found. Let's have a great celebration. Stay in your sin and it will only multiply your misery. But repent of your sin and you can know the joy that is found in Christ alone. Secondly, surrender. Just surrender. God is in control. God is in control. I'm, I'm not saying don't do anything. But surrender to him. Stop trying to be in control. That is the essence of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. They didn't want God to control things. They did. We want to control our image. We want to control our circumstances. We want to control our husbands and our wives and our kids. And quite frankly, our desire to control is faithless. And I would say, just stop trying to control him. Why don't you just take your hands off and see what Jesus might do if he took the wheel? Somebody in our DNA this week said they took their hands off the wheel, but then they made it clear to us that they were sitting in a parking lot when they did it. I said, there's a whole new country, there's a whole new country song in that one right there. Okay. Why do you have to take your hands off the wheel while you're sitting parked in a parking space in a parking lot? 
But I would challenge you and encourage you today that our desire to control is faithless. It is faithless. There's a God who is in control that can do a much better job of everything in our lives than we can. It is arrogant. It is rebellious. And it creates anxiety. And it creates stress. And it's going to ultimately result in disappointment and failure. But joy comes. Joy comes when we say God is in control. Which means I'm not going to be in competition with him. You take over, Lord. You take over. Thirdly. How has the spirit of Babylon captured you, allured you, enticed you, or deceived you? Hey, guys, we're all there. Babylon's all up in our face. Babylon's all up in our heart. Babylon's all up in our pocketbook. Come on. Babylon's all up in our schedule. It's all overs. I mean, we, we walked in this place this morning with the stench of Babylon on us. Every one of us. Every one of us. And if you don't stop and do some kind of heart check to say, how is the spirit of Babylon redefining me and re-identifying me and ruining me and my family? Fourthly and finally, put your hope and faith, and love in a faithful God. God is always faithful. Run to Him. Run to Him. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is sinking sand. I invite you to come this morning. And I I want you to Think about the finished work of Jesus Christ as you come to the table. This, this, it's a piece of dry bread and some Welch's grape juice. But in your heart, it can be a it can be a great celebration. It can be a great celebration. And so I invite you to the party. Maybe not, that we're not going to have around bread and juice, but the party that we're going to have in heaven. But I invite you to the joy of repentance as you come to the table. I invite you to the joy of knowing that you don't have to be in control. God is. I invite you to the joy of knowing that while nothing else in this world is faithful, and while we are not even faithful, the God that we put our faith in is a faithful God. And it is His faithfulness that assures our salvation. 